A reading from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, Let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning we're continuing in our study through the book of Genesis right from the start. This is the last section, our sermon today, the last section of kind of the early history of the world before we get into the life of Abraham. So this is a somewhat of a transitional passage uh, from the creation of the world and Adam and Eve to where we focus more in on the blessing to God's people through Abraham. I don't know about you, but as I've thought about kind of this, the beginning of things and specifically the beginning of the cosmos and what God did to create all things, one thing that I come away with is the idea that God is really, really big. That God can create all that is, and it, it's done by his word. He speaks, and it comes into being. God is really, really big. The other thought that I, that I come away with is that I'm really, really small. I'm very, so very small. And, and all of us, in fact, our whole world is so very small. This reminds me of a story, a Dr. Seuss story. Now, maybe you've read the book, maybe you've seen the movie, but it reminds me of Horton Hears a Who, a story where the creatures called the Who's live in a community called Whoville on a planet on a speck of dust which resides on a red clover. Horton puts this speck of dust on a clover. Horton's the elephant there. And for most of the story, we're, we're living inside the world of the Who's in Whoville and seeing what they've made and what they've created and the cultures they've built. And yet we also see outside Whoville and see how small they are. The entire village of Whoville is so unaware of how tiny they are, of how small their world actually is. And Horton, the elephant, goes to great lengths to protect Whoville and to protect the Who's in the story. And he eventually proclaims several times, a person's a person no matter how small. And as we think about Horton hears a who, we think about the absurdity of the, of the size differential from the speck that is Whoville and Horton, who himself lives on his own planet with other creatures. But let me just say that the, the size and absurdity of the differential in Horton hears a who is so small in comparison to the creator of the universe and his creation. The, the, the grandeur of our creator and how small we actually 
are. And yet, we find this God intervening into our world to protect us, to care for us, to direct us. And that's what we'll see in our passage this morning at the Tower of Babel. So we'll see two different points this morning. Beware the dangers of collective apostasy. And we will, number two, celebrate God's intervention into human history. Let's pray together. God, I am thankful this morning that you are over all things that you are so high above this creation, that you created it with such little effort, and yet that you enter into it for our care, to care for these tiny persons, no matter how small. Lord, would you open our eyes today to the glory of how you have entered into your created world to rescue us, to direct us, to lead us. Thank you for, um, thank you for this narrative early in the earth's history to communicate your truth to us about who you are and about your plans for this creation, about your plans for your glory. And Lord, we're aware of many of the consequences of what happened here at Babel. The many languages, the many cultures, the disunity and the lack of harmony that comes because of those things in this earth. And Lord, we look forward to the restoration of all things under our King Jesus. Lord, help us to understand this passage. Help us to apply what we can to our own lives, both in how we worship you and in how we understand your care over us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, beware the dangers of collective Apostasy. That's pretty wordy, I understand, for a a point in a sermon. I pulled it from an Old Testament scholar, Alan Ross, uh, in his book um, about the blessings uh, in Genesis. And this is what he says, When the human race settled together to preserve their unity and develop their fame by building a grandiose city tower, the Lord interrupted their collective apostasy, and scattered them across the face of the earth by confusing their language and united, that united them. So God interrupted their collective apostasy. You see, all together, the people on earth were running away from God. And God interrupted that. He interrupted their falling away from him by his great mercy. And that's what we're going to see in the Tower of Babel today. Now, perhaps when you think the Tower of Babel, you just think about the multiplication of languages. And that is a fascinating thing. There, uh, just in reading for this, there are lots of studies about, is it, is it possible that all the languages of the earth came from one language? And there's you know, cultural and social studies that we could do about this. We're, we're not going to deal with all that. We're just going to deal with the text today. But we may think of the multiplication of all these languages. But there's more going on here in Babel than just the multiplication of language. It may not even be clearly obvious to us as we look at the text on what was their great sin. What did they do wrong? Now, we know God corrects some things. God does something because of what they did, but that may not be entirely obvious at the very beginning. But before we dive into those details, I want to remind ourselves where we are in the context of Genesis so far and in the history of the world. Uh, In two weeks, we'll begin the life of Abraham and the pace of the book of Genesis and the pace of our sermons will pick up quite a bit. But as we're in this transitional moment in the book of Genesis, I do want us to stop and, and think where we are in the story. 
First, I want to remind us of the, of the markers in the book itself. These are worth underlining, marking in your Bibles. So we have the, our chapter divisions that we've put in the Bible, but, but the author of the book has actually given us his own, we could say, section headings throughout the book of Genesis. The phrase that we'll see in the ESV is, these are the generations. So this repeats over and over again throughout the book. It could be translated, and this is the family history of... And so these are the ones we've come across so far. So if you just want to jot these down, Genesis 2-4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So the first chapter marker, chapter 2, creation. Chapter 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. This follows the line of Seth. And then we jump to Genesis 6, chapter 9, these are the generations of Noah, So we follow Noah and the flood. And then chapter 10, which we've kind of skipped over, so I'm going to kind of touch on chapter 10 a bit today. Chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generation of the sons of Noah. Okay, we've got Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then in chapter 11, right after our passage, we have these are the generations of Shem. Okay, And then finally, in chapter 11, which we're not there yet, but this is where we're headed, chapter 11, verse 27, these are the generations of Terah. Now, you might think, who's Terah? Well, this is actually dealing with the family of Abraham. Terah fathered Abram. So Terah was Abraham's father. And that will take us through the whole next section of the book of Genesis, so, so those are the chapter markers that we've seen so far. But they're also, we've, we've, we've covered a few sections of action throughout the opening of Genesis. Chapters 1 and 2, very obvious. The action of creation. God created the heavens and the earth. And then we have chapter 3, Adam and Eve and the fall. Then we had chapter 4, Cain and Abel. And then chapter 6 through 9, the flood. So those were the major action scenes that we've seen throughout the book. So remember, this is covering more or less around fifteen or 1,600 years of human history. And, and Moses has given us basically these four scenes so far. Creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the flood. There are a few other things in there, but those are the main ones. So... That's significant. So we're talking about 1,600 years or so, just a few scenes in the Bible to show us certain things about what the Lord is doing and how mankind is responding. And overall, the stories that we've heard from from Adam and Eve till Babel are not particularly encouraging about how man is doing on the earth. You see, each one of those scenes has man failing in a significant way and God intervening in a redemptive way, in a merciful way. And if we overlay these generations, it's helpful. There are some some graphical uh, pictures of this, but if you think of Adam and how long he lived in the next 10 generations or so, just, just an interesting thing to think about is that Noah's father, Lamech, lived at the same time as Adam. So Noah's father, Lamech, would have been about 50 years old when Adam died. So in this whole pre-flood era and then soon after the flood, just think, you might have known somebody that knew the first man. And even with that, Mankind gets off the rails so very quickly. But thinking about chapter 10, which we may call the table of nations, sometimes that's what chapter 10 is called, whereas we're talking about in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. If you read the table of nations, you may think, um, well, John, what we just read in chapter 11 talks about kind of the scattering of the nations, but that already happened. That already happened in chapter 10. Well, I'm glad that you're paying attention in your Bible reading. Uh, That's good. But we shouldn't view chapters 10 and 11 as being in chronological order. 
It's not like chapter 10 happened and then chapter 11 happened. Rather, chapter 10 is giving a, giving a big picture of, of the nations spreading. And it even says they had with their own languages. In 10 verse 5, uh, the sons of Japheth with his own language. Chapter 10 verse 20, the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, their nations. 1031, the sons of Shem their clans, their languages, their lands, their nations. So we see in chapter 10 kind of the disbursement over all the land, all the earth, if you will, through the sons of Noah. But then chapter 11 is going to go back and dive into a specific, specific moment that made that happen. We, we actually see this referenced in chapter 10 in verse 25. If you want to look at, with me at 1025, to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days, the earth was divided. So in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. Now he was born 101 years after the flood, and he lived 239 years. So we're 100 or so years after the flood, and then for the next 239 years, Scripture says the earth was divided. Now, maybe you read that and you think, is that talking about the continental shifts? What is that talking about? I think the text would lead us to say that is when God dispersed the peoples from Babel throughout the whole earth. And the Babel narrative is sandwiched between this, these genealogies in chapter 10 and Abraham. So this is, hap- this is what's happening in between. So how are we going to get to man dispersing throughout the earth and in many ways doing so badly, wickedly, not in obedience and in worship of God? How are we going to get from there to God blessing the man Abraham and his coming covenant with Abraham? So a few words about this passage itself. It's, it's pretty compact, nine verses. Um, it's filled with all kinds of literary devices. This is one of those moments where I'm jealous of the people who read Hebrew and can really read the Hebrew because it's, it's a fascinating passage in Hebrew. It's just as Brad mentioned with the flood narrative, there's a, a chiastic structure, a chiasm, the letter X in Greek. So um, this is a literary device where clauses and themes are laid out and then repeated in the reverse order, okay? And this creates an A, B, B, A pattern. So we saw that with the flood. That's also right here in this text. There is a very strict chiastic structure, A, B, B, or A, B, C, D, E, F, G, back to A again. But it also has other kinds of literary devices in there, uh, things like using similar words or using words that just swap a few letters around or words that Hebrew words that sound like other Hebrew words. In other words, this is a very crafted narrative to tell a story about what happened at this stage in creation with a particular emphasis. We see an example of words that sound like other words in verse 9, which we've already read. Therefore, the name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And of course, we associate the English word Babel with languages as well. Maybe you have the Babel app on your phone where you're learning other languages. But, but actually, the Hebrew words for Babel and confused sound alike. It doesn't mean confused, but it sounds like the word for confused. Now, let me just speak about Babel here for a minute because our ESV in chapter 10 and here in chapter 11 translates this Hebrew word as Babel. This is unfortunate for us. Uh, it's only translated this time, uh, this way, two times out of 261 occurrences in the Old Testament. And the 251 of those occurrences, it is translated as Babylon, Okay. Babel and Babylon are the same place. So this is the city of Babylon. Now, it's just fascinating to think how early in the story of the Bible the city of Babylon becomes prominent. And as we'll see by the end of the sermon today, the city of Babylon 
it's spoken of all the way into the last few chapters of the book of Revelation. And it begins here. In chapter 10, Nimrod, um, a mighty hunter before the Lord, starts the city of Babel. He founds the city of Babel. This is in Mesopotamia, um, where the city of Babylon was. Now, Babylon will come, become more prominent in the time of the uh, captivity, um, but for here, this is, this is the very beginning of the city of Babel. But let's ask this question. What did Babel do wrong? What did Babel do wrong? And we see what God did, and that's going to help us understand what they did wrong. But when I say that God intervened to interrupt the, the dangers of their collective apostasy... What was their apostasy? How were they walking away from God and his plans? What was their rebellion or sin? Well, let's look back at uh, verse 1 again. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled Anything sound off to you? It didn't to me at first glance. But after a closer look, we see here actually the main problem, the main disobedience, the main rebellion is captured right here. They settled there. Now that doesn't sound wrong all by itself until we think, what has God's command been to the sons of Noah. Now, one of the ways we know this is the main, the main problem is this is the thing that God corrects. This is the thing that God makes them do a redo on in verse 9. From there, the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. So, what is it they were supposed to be doing? They were supposed to be dispersing over all the face of the earth, but instead they migrated, ESV says, from the east. It could be they were, they were in the east. The idea is east there, which that theme goes throughout, throughout the whole Genesis narrative up till now. Eden was in the east. They left Eden and went to the east. Lot went to the east. Um, Lots of, lots of East language here in the early chapters of the Bible. So they were migrating in the East, and they came to this plain in Mesopotamia, in Shinar, and what did they do? They, they said, well, we're just going to stop right here. So their first act of rebellion was to come into this area of Babylon and settle down. So they settled down. Chapter 9, verse 1 says this, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again, in verse 7 of chapter 9, and you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Or at the end of chapter 10, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now remember, chapter 10, verse 32 doesn't happen before the Tower of Babel. It's a result of God's actions at the Tower of Babel, that they were dispersed across the whole earth. So God's intention from Adam and Eve, and then again from Noah and his sons, was to fill the earth. To fill the earth. This is part of God's redemptive plan, that they would fill the earth. Instead, these descendants of Noah congregated in a city. I'm thinking of all my snarky comments about living in the country versus the city, which I will not share with you today. But, but in this case, living in the city was, was not what God had in mind for his plan. Tony Ranke in his book uh, says, due to an extraordinary long lifespans of the time, just 150 years after the flood, they could have easily climbed to 50,000. The population could have climbed to 50,000. But instead of spreading across the globe, this post-flood population gathered in Babel. So 50,000 people after the flood, they're supposed to be spreading, spreading, 
dispersing. But instead they settled in Babel. Now we know that this wasn't just a passive thing on the part of of the residents here. Instead, we see in verse 4 that they were actively resisting being spread over the face of the earth. Now, perhaps they were growing weary of the nomadic life. We don't know all the reasons. Perhaps they just long for security that comes from being together in numbers. But whatever the reason is, in, at, at verse 4, the end of verse 4, they say, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So we know they're actively resisting this plan of God. Now we, we have the advantage of having received a lot more revelation from God since uh, what they had received. But they did receive the command to, to multiply and fill the earth. And yet we know that God has, God has a plan for the nations to bring glory to himself. They didn't know all that. But what they did know, they rejected, and they rebelled against this command of God, and they were rebelling collectively as a group, and God had to intervene. Now, let's look at a couple of specific ways that they were rebelling against God. Um, I'm calling this idea, beware of the dangers of secular technology, You might have thought, I didn't think we were going to hear a sermon about technology with Babel today. But what we see in this narrative is is human ingenuity and creativity and technology used in the service of rebelling against God. Now, I know you can't imagine that happening today, but it was happening here. I mentioned earlier um, Tony Ranke's book. This is God, Technology, and the Christian Life. I just grabbed this and took it on my Christmas vacation for some light reading. Uh, I got through the first chapter. Um, But in the one chapter that I read, in chapter two actually, he deals with, with the technology in the Bible. And specifically, he talks about Babel. First, he talks about the ark, how they used pitch, tar on the ark to make it waterproof so that it would float and the wood wouldn't rot. Well, that was technology in the use of God's purposes and kingdom. But here in Babel, they used that same tar that would have been in the tar pits in the area, uh, which is kind of like the beginning of the Middle East oil enterprise right there. Um, So they took that and they used it, uh, that and baking these bricks to, they used that technology against God. So let's look at it in verse three. See if you can find the technology. So they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So one of these, we've already seen this bitumen or tar or asphalt, if you want to call it that, in use in the ark, cover the inside and out with pitch. Uh, But here, we also see them baking these bricks Okay, so when we think of construction in in the ancient world, we may think of Canaan where most of the time they used existing stone and and used that stone to build buildings. But they they didn't use that here. They actually made bricks and put them in a kiln and baked them so that they would be more robust and sturdy and stable. So they had this new technology. Hey, with this, we could do something amazing. We could build a really, really tall tower. And that's what they do. In fact, we know through other studies of Mesopotamia and even in Babylon and this area, the ziggurats that were were built, that was a little later than some of this period, but this could have been kind of an early prototype of that, this tall tower. And it was was being built, um, I say secular because I don't think they had the worship of God in mind as their doing this. Verse 4, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. So we've already mentioned that they are working against God by refusing to be dispersed over the face of the land, but there are two other issues with their plan. They're using this technology to build a, a, a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. 
So don't just imagine here that they're thinking, let's make the first skyscraper. Like they're, not, they're not just thinking in terms of, of, of building something tall. They're, they're thinking, we're going to build something that reaches to the gods. By our power and by, by our ingenuity and by our creativity, we are going to reach up to the gods. How do we know that? Well, the idea of building a tower to the heavens, which is where God exists, and making a name for themselves, they're saying, we don't, we don't need God, right? We can pursue glory and fame apart from God through our use of technology and ingenuity and creativity. Now, if we just stopped and paused and thought, does that happen in today's modern scientific and technology complex that we might use our technology to remove our need for God, to distract from our awareness of God, to limit our dependence on God? And we would say, Absolutely, we see that all around us. To overcome human limitations, we may use technology to do that. And this is not, this is not a, a treatise on avoiding technology. It's, it's an encouragement that we use technology for God's glory and for God's purposes. It's not just that they wanted to be famous for their tower. It's they wanted to make a name for themselves. John Dyer, in his book, From the Garden to the City, says, when God created the garden, he put humankind in it to reflect his image. At Babel, we find humans creating a city as their anti-garden and a tower as an image to themselves. So God help us to not use our ingenuity and technology to make an image for ourselves, but for glorifying God. So God, God God says there are dangers in this collective apostasy and all together deciding against doing God's will, which is what was happening in Babel. Let's go to point number two, that we should celebrate God's intervention in human history. We see this in verse five. It says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Let me just pause there for a second. Just just saying. He's saying the children, the, the children, the children of the children of Adam here. These little children have made this tower, and the Lord came down to see it. Verse seven: Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Now, I mentioned earlier that this whole passage is a chiasm. It's a chiasm. And perhaps when you think back to Brad's Sermon on the Flood, you remember the center of the chiasm is the point, right? In the, in the, in the flood narrative, the center of that chiasm was, and God remembered Noah. But here, the center of our narrative is verse 5, and the Lord came down. This is the point of the story. The Lord came down to see. Now, this is, this is rich with sarcasm. I mean, why would the Lord need to come down? They just built a tower that reached to the heavens. It went up to the gods. At the pinnacle of human technology and engineering to this point, God had to come down. He had to He had to come down and put his his face to the floor and and just try to look and see this tiny little tower that they had built that supposedly reached to the heavens. God, God coming down is part of his judgment and part of his mercy. I want to think for a minute how God's response here is different than his response in the flood narrative or in Adam and Eve's narrative or Cain and Abel's narrative. So let's just go through those, 
briefly. So God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, and they ate. Then what did God do? God intervened. Now, we think of his intervention in several ways. God gave curses to the man, the woman, and the serpent. God sent them out of the garden. And we shudder to think about the cherubim with the flaming sword guarding the way to the garden. But we also remember God's grace. God clothed them. God... um, God made a promise of future redemption to them. And this this is what I want us to think about. God did something to protect them from sinning more. What did God do? He did not allow them to eat of the tree of life. And this is going to connect to our passage in a minute. So after Adam and Eve sinned, God prevented them from eating of the tree of life. Why? Because in their current fallen state, eating the tree of life would have been terrible. It would have been awful for them to live forever in that state of sinful fallenness. And so in God's mercy, he prevented them from eating of the tree of life. With Cain, there was this opportunity to worship the Lord. Okay? Failed there. There was an opportunity to repent after he failed, didn't do so hot. He became angry, murdered his brother. And what did God do? God intervened. God intervened. Now, God brought judgment with another curse on the ground for Cain, making him a wanderer and fugitive. But God still shows grace, putting a mark on Cain so that others would not take vengeance to stop the bloodshed. And God shows even more grace to Adam and Eve by giving them another son, Seth, to pass on a godly line. Well, that godly line didn't stay so godly again. And so by Genesis chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what did God do? God intervened. God judges the world by bringing the flood, but God also shows mercy by preserving Noah and his sons. So we see in each of these situations, God brings judgment, but also mercy. God responds. God enters into human history. He changes the course of events. And friends, this means we don't worship a God that is distant or disinterested or distracted. I mean, so much of the text of Scripture is yelling at us that God cares about our lives, cares about the things going on in our lives, and He enters in. He, according to our passage, He comes down. God comes down. Did you notice what God did not do in Babel? God did not destroy Babel. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, God destroyed everyone living on the earth except for Noah and his sons and their wives. But here, God doesn't destroy Babel. God doesn't kill everyone in the city. God does not destroy the city or the tower. But he does interrupt their collective apostasy. God rescued them from maximizing their own evil. Look at verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, don't misunderstand God's concern here. God is not concerned that they are a threat to His supremacy or to His rule. God is concerned about the evil that they might do with their hearts turned away from God, with one language, with one purpose, with a unified culture and a unified language. Think of what they could do sinfully. So God intervenes 
He interrupts. In his mercy, he restrains them. He acts to restrain evil. Now, the human story to this point, as we've said, with some exceptions, there are some exceptions of Enoch walking with God or Noah found favor with God. But, but overall, mankind was only successful in finding more successful ways of sinning and turning away from God. And God is actively, through his mercy, restraining them. We read about this in 2 Thessalonians from Paul. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And here at Babel, God is restraining their potential evil deeds by confusing their language and making it harder for them to unite in their rebellion against God. However, as we've already said, the main issue at Babel was not their language, nor their tower, but their refusal to disperse over all the earth. Because God is focused on a bigger story, a bigger story of redemption. With Adam and Eve and with the flood, we can easily spot the mercy of God in those narratives. But it's not so easy here to see what exactly in this final act, before we, in this final act of the kind of the creation of the world and the peopling of the world, what is the biggest clue of what God's mercy is here? Well, I think the biggest clue is that we're introduced to Abraham. And so the rest of the Old Testament and much of the New Testament, the camera lens is really going to zoom in closely in this story of redemption through one family the family of Abraham. We've already learned that the serpent crusher promised in Genesis 3.15, it is not Seth. We've learned that the serpent crusher is definitely not Noah. And what we learn here in Babel is that God has to come down. But God's, God's redemptive plan is not limited to rescuing one nation with its unified language. That's not God's plan. His, his glory is greater than that. His plan is more expansive than that. And that's where Abraham comes in. God is preparing a blessing for all the nations of the earth through Abraham. In Genesis 22, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This blessing on all the nations was not Abraham himself, but through his offspring. So fast forward 2,000 years and we learn who that offspring of Abraham is. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In him, God came down. In him, God intervened in a completely new way into human history, not just by redirecting the events of human history, but by entering into that history himself. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so in Babel, we see the point that God came down. Now, he came down to disperse them. He came down in judgment. He came down to restrain them from evil. And throughout the rest of Biblical history, Babylon becomes this representative of the enemies of God, a namesake for human pride and rebellion and depravity. But there is good news. The undoing of Babel has begun. 
The beginning of the end has come through Christ's work and through the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, where those from many nations were miraculously hearing the works of God declared in their own languages. The beginning of the end of Babylon came when the Lord Jesus sent his, craw, his, sent his church to the nations. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, Babylon is being undone. And finally, Babylon will ultimately be destroyed. Now, God was patient. God was patient in the days of Babel. He did not destroy them in their wickedness. God will ultimately and completely bring judgment on those who will not submit to his rule. And so Babylon and all that she stands for will ultimately be destroyed. I'm going to read a bit from Revelation. So we, we began by thinking how early in the story of the Bible Babylon comes into view and how throughout biblical history Babylon represents this pride and resistance and rebellion and depravity against the Lord. But friends, in the end, Babylon is destroyed and we will find a new city. This is from Revelation 18, but I didn't put it up here because I just want us to listen. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all who have been slain on the earth. And after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged her blood on his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. See, the great city of Babylon, which promoted collective rebellion against God, will be finally brought down. But we receive a new and better city. That is not the final word. Once Babylon is cast down, there will be a new city and a better one. And he carried me up in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun, moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb, and its light, and by its light, listen, will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This was all begun at Babel. God forced the peoples to disperse throughout the whole world so that this moment in history could happen, a moment in our future when people from every tribe, language, people, and tongue, and nation will give glory to God and to the Lamb. So what do we do? Well, the descendants of Noah after the flood, they actually chose the security and comfort of Babel. They were told to go out, but they refused. Even in the early church, they hung together and God dispersed them through persecution so that the gospel would go to the nations. Friends, God is pursuing his glory through the gospel going out. God is pursuing his glory through the worship of the nations. And it's amazing. It's amazing that we, so small, just like the Who's in Whoville, a person is a person no matter how small. Friends, we, we have been invited into a grand scheme, a grand scheme to glorify the creator of all things. God has chosen in his wisdom to use our small voices as voices of praise and voices of proclamation. We are tasked with bringing glory to the creator of all things. So let's pray and work and proclaim to that end. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your intervention into human history. Thank you that at all the critical moments, you have come down. You've come down in judgment, but also in mercy. And ultimately, you came down in your own son, Jesus Christ. You came down not just to restrain our evil, but to welcome us into your family You came down that our worship might be acceptable to you by faith. You came down that you might become one of us to rescue us from our sins, to rescue us from Babylon. You came down that we might proclaim the glory of your name. We accept that invitation. Be glorified in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.